Welcome to a night of total terror. <laughs> when was the last time you were scared, scared, scared? to another episode of It Came From Queens. Thank you for tuning in again to The Static this evening. It's Benjamin Fabo coming at you with another weird-ass episode for you. Joining me for the first time ever this week, she is, uh, haven't spoken with this person in a minute, but I'm happy to have her on the show with me. She is my uh, former uh, college friend and uh, sh uh, shoulder to cry on. She is also a, a black horror aficionado, which is perfect for today's subject matter. She's my good friend, Hillary Brito. How you doing? Hi, Ben. I'm doing good. I'm doing good. Uh, quarantine, apparently, <laughs> as everyone else is. Haven't as... left my house in two months. Two months. What is the sun? Oh, those, what is the sun? Oh, those are uh, two months. Those are rookie numbers. That was that was social distancing before all of this bullshit. Those are rookie numbers. <laughs> those are... So, is the essential employee? Yes. <laughs> I don't this, this this show is my happy place. Don't okay. <laughs> don't remind me of that. Like, I got I got furloughed, so I've oh just God. literally just been home. Oh God! But the suits, uh, but it's good for this purpose because we're gonna be. Uh, I I've wanted to do this episode for a while because a friend asked me if I was going to discuss it in any capacity. A friend of mine of the show, uh, Tyler Miozzi, kind of contacted me. And was like, "Are you curious about that Candyman reboot?" And I was like, "Yeah, I am." And I'm like. Are you going to talk about it on the show? And I'm like, I, my, my whole thing with Candyman is I love it and I admire it and I'd love to discuss it. But my big, my ax to ground was always, I'm like, it feels, it doesn't feel right for me to discuss this without somebody who's legitimately a person of color around to discuss this movie. It doesn't feel right for just me, uh, a not, for just me, a white guy to just discuss, well, you know, it's time for another white guy to tell you what he thinks about race. I feel there's enough yeah. of that, so. <laughs> well, let me, uh, it reminds me of this joke from Bojack Horseman. It, it works out of context, but it's like, and obviously abortion is a very serious topic that affects a lot of women. So to talk about it, here's four guys in bow ties. Yeah. <laughs> That's, <laughs> That's, and I'm like, well, here to talk about this divisive race issue, here's an esteemed panel of three white men and one white woman in a pantsuit. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Literally so, every time, so. What I, what I love about, like, um, Candyman specifically is, like, the main character is a, like, she's, like, the title character is Candyman, right? But then yes. the main character is a white college-educated woman who's, like, I think on her graduate thesis. Um, so it's just, like, it's interesting because it's kind of, like, the, a lot of the horror is, like, peripheral, and it's this white person invading this very predominantly African-American space, especially in like in the Cabrini Green project. So it's just like, yes. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> it's a lot to unravel. Oh, it is a lot to unravel. Like, uh, in addition to rewatching, we're going to talk about a lot of that today. We're going to talk about the original. We're going to talk about what it's based on. We're going to talk about the influence it has. It's the discussions of race that it brings up. And we're also going to talk about our feelings about the reboot, which hopefully comes out in June. So so Hopefully. I, one of my favorites thing about like how these new like black horror reboots are happening is that they take very colloquially like known, like known 
themes in the black community and like repurpose it. So yes. when I read, when I was watching that trailer and they were playing Destiny's Child Say My Name to the back, as the backtrack for that, I was like, this is genius. Oh, I God. already adore it. Yes. No, Jordan Peele, like he's producing this one. He's not directing yeah. it, but his, but, his, but his like signature fingerprint of, I'm just going to take like a 90s, early 2000s, like R&B like song. And a just, bop, if you will. A bop, if you will, and just repurpose it. Like, they took Put Five on it for us. They did fucking... Uh, My favorite part from us was not just the, the five on it. It was the fuck the police, police. section with uh, the Alexa, the Alexa joke. The, the, they called it something else. I think they called it, like, Sierra or something. Sierra, call the police. All right, like, playing NWAs. Fuck the, fuck the yeah. police. <laughs> it's great. Uh, Can you curse on this podcast, I'm yes, assuming? Yes, okay, 100%. Yeah, well, this, ain't no, this ain't no buzzy podcast. This is, for, this is 18 <laughs> plus. Put the kids to bed. Put this on. Come on. Okay. I don't, I don't, yeah, um, I don't, drink, I don't drink during these things because I'm wanting to, I want to be professional. <laughs> oh, my God. So, because um, this is an audio format, for you guys at home, uh, he just took a swig. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I did. Of a, um, of, a lovely, but, of a lovely raging bitch IPA. I'm not sponsored by them. I just like the brand. Hey, you hear that, raging bitch? Sponsor this man. Sponsor Meanwhile, this man. I have water. Um, but uh, what, a, like, music specifically, especially like rap and hip hop within the themes in the black community, it's like they're very visceral in a very specific way. It's like black culture is not. I think it, there was an episode of Blackish where um, the show, as problematic as it is, because there's no like dark skinned people of color on that show, that actually can like attest to this uh, situation, they, they usually touch on these topics um, about like a cultural appropriation and black culture and how it's more than just like unlaced sneakers or wearing your hair in braids or any kind of thing like that. It's actually more like this is a culture that a group of people had to create for themselves to um, kind of replace one that was stolen from them. So in a lot of ways, it's like they're, the fear of losing it again is what makes people very defensive about hmm. certain things. So having a well-respected like black producer, director that isn't Tyler Perry because God, anyway, I'll, we're not talking about Tyler Perry now, but um, just having Jordan Peele, who is a very identifiable figure in the black community, um, kind of use certain things that are cultural to, to like, like us, our group, and not having to explain it. Hmm. So my one of my favorite segments of um, of us as a horror film is the fact that uh, I think her name is Adelaide. Yeah. Adelaide's husband is a Howard-educated Mumbaku, basically. Um, he's just like a very tall, like intimidating figure of a, of what people view as a like a black man. Winston so Duke. Yeah. So when Winston Duke is like hey, what are you doing on our property? And then he has to code switch into, yo, get like that, was a very visceral thing that actually happens. So, I, I love, yeah, I love, I love, he's fantastic in that. I love how, I love his bit about, I am done with boats. Not doing boats anymore. Yep. <laughs> I am over boats. I mean, my favorite joke about boats, because I refuse to get on them, is the last time my people got on a boat, we didn't get back home for 300 years. So we're not doing that. Uh, I'm from a Caribbean island. I don't trust the ocean. Uh, <laughs> all right. <laughs> the no, nah, but you were talking about Jordan Peele, and he is a producer on the new one. So, like, as far as the original is concerned, because that is the main crux of what we're talking about here. First of all, like, 
the main thing though, you speaking about music before, the main thing that stands out to me about Candyman right from the start is that it is probably one of my favorite scores in any horror film ever. I think yeah, that it's the, effective. I, I think that the theme and the orchestrals and the way everything is presented in the film is so good. But like, to me, I've always wondered, Candyman is such a well-written movie, but I feel like 40% of why that movie works is because you just have Tony Todd being slick as shit for that yeah. home. He is, if you've ever wondered why that dude still gets work to this day, it's because he's fantastic. Because this movie, he he's so, I really can't do justice to just how good Tony Todd is in this role. Because like, it's, he's- he, You know what it is? It's because like Candyman as a figure, like even within the mythos of the show, it's supposed to be like a very vengeful, tragic kind of figure, but there's like a suaveness to that, which plays into like how like white supremacist societies kind of view like black se- black male sexuality as like consideredly hyper aggressive. So just like when you even like the way he's styled, like with his trench coat and stuff like that, kind of evokes a very kind of like a pimp atmosphere. To Very it. Pimp. And when you, yeah, and when you take into account like how in the narrative of the show, that image, the iconography of that character is like reused by a, like an actual like criminal within the projects, it's all supposed to kind of tie together as he's kind of like a man out of time mm-hmm. because he was murdered in the 1890s and then That's this his- is setting. That's his backstory. Like, yeah. the one thing I had always, because I saw the movie originally when I was like a very young kid, first discovering horror. So I enjoyed it, but a lot of the nuances in the backstory were kind of lost on me. Like, the, the backstory of Candyman, you get into it, is like a really like tragic parable about like race. He was like, he was the son of what, he was like a son of a slave, a freed slave. of a freed slave who made all this money and he was, he was this portraitist who like very rich, what ritzy plantation families would like pay to get portraits done. And he, he did the portrait of this one plantation owner's daughter. They fell in love. Yeah. It pissed off all the white people. So they hunted him down, lynched him, cut his hand off and then slathered him in honey and threw him to the bees where he was stung to death. Yeah. So the narrative of like, there's, there's a level of, of uncomfortableness around like, black men specifically when it comes to white women. So a lot of the stereotypes surrounding black men and just j- literally the surrounding, like the, some of the stereotypes we know about black men are like, they're well endowed, but in the context of what that exists in, that's supposed to like make them look as non-human as possible as a means of like, they, these are very primal people and therefore they're only reduced to their base urges, which is to like rape and to pillage. It's, it's lampooning that trope of, I just rewatched a very excellent documentary. I encourage everyone to check it out. It's called Horror Noir. It's available mm-hmm. on Shudder. And if you get, you can get Shudder through Amazon. So you can probably watch it there too. It's this great hour and a half documentary where they talk about the history of black horror, the presence of peoples of color within horror and cinema as a whole. And like it always, it, they kind of, one of the things they touch upon is in very early, very racist cinema, the, the ultimate way was to, the, the way it was done back then was to have a innocent, pure white woman being attacked and menaced by, a evil, by an evil black person. And this movie kind of takes that trope and kind of twists it and turns it and turns on its head a little bit. So one of my favorite kind of allusions to an aspect of black horror that 
Okay, so whenever there's like a story of racism or a parable of racism, and maybe there's like a supernatural element to it. So my favorite example of that is like To Kill a Mockingbird, where you have like this weird, like like bizarre mysticism thing happening with Boo Radley, and how he's been like villainized as kind of like this like boogeyman figure. But then you have Tom Robinson, who is a disabled farmhand who physically could not do the crime right and convicted because of racial prejudice even though it's highly unlikely that he could do it because man did not have a hand it's kind of like another situation where like even in like if i were to think of a real life situation where like white white womanhood fragility in context of black men or even just black boys has routinely caused either them to be incarcerated or them to lose their life because of the optics of the situation. Um, a really, uh, like in the Jim Crow era, that would have been Emmett Till. In the 80s in New York, that would have been the Central Park Five. And now that would have been like, uh, what's his name? Trayvon Martin? Yeah, well, not Trayvon Martin's situation is very specific because he was a unarmed young black boy who was just walking in his neighborhood. But in the context of like, if a white woman were to, oh, wait, no, I know. Uh, he was a football, he was a football, like he was on a scholarship for football um, and he was accused of, uh, of rape by an underage girl because she was at a party and basically ruined his life. But um, there are situations where white women specifically will weaponize this, 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 uh, this mental image of purity and fragility to disenfranchise black people, specifically black men, because they're viewed as sexually aggressive. So it's, it's, a, very, it's a very nuanced situation, um, especially in the context of, because like Candyman is a very specific example of like a star-crossed lover is whatever, whatever and like reincarnation and whatever the fuck. However, that has probably happened more time, maybe not a specific of a situation like that, but you can take examples in like actual history where no matter how much like gains a black person has made in society, if they are still in a white supremacist society, they will still be, uh, that, could, that could easily be taken away from them. So it's like proximity to whiteness is where he got his power originally from. Mm -hmm. And now as a specter haunting like a predominantly black community, it's, it's weird. It's kind of like he's re-incriminating people who suffer under the same exact thing that caused him to be murdered. Well, the thing about Candyman is he's very similar to Freddy Krueger. It's like he is literally an urban legend, emphasis on the urban. Yeah. Like he very, he subsists on like creating this legend, this fear about who he is. Like, and that's the weird thing. Like he wants, he wants Helen, the main character, to be a legend with him for all of time. That's the weird thing that I don't think a lot of people get about Candyman. It's ultimately when you really break it down, a love story, a really fucked up one, but it's still a yeah. love story. My, my, uh, so I was thinking the same thing about the Freddy Krueger thing. Um, and it's kind of like seeking immortality out of victimhood. Mm. Where when the, like the quote is like, be my victim. Be my victim. I was like, iconic, first of all. However, as a final girl, Helen is amazing because she didn't willing, she like, she kind of like stole his infamacy from him and now she's the curse. 
I'm ignoring, I am disregarding the sequels at this point because I honestly- I've never, I've never seen them. Me neither. My point is Candyman as a, sing, as a solitary film works because the idea that by reclaiming some semblance of power and like killing him in a, I, you know, it's just like she kind of, in a weird feminist way, she kind of became the villain of the story but in a way that empowers her? No, it's the weirdest thing because like there's a scene in the movie that was weird, kind of had to, I rewatched it twice because I was kind of interested by it. She goes to the projects to find Candyman. She gets assaulted by these thugs. Mm -hmm. And then this is somehow the media, this mild media attention she gets from being attacked in the projects while hunting the story is kind of the extra nudge she gets to get it published. But she's completely fine with the fact that she's basically using her like notoriety and victimhood to like get ahead. She's totally so, fine with that. The interesting thing about Helen is that even within the narrative, she acknowledges certain levels of privilege. Like she was like, this woman was being murdered in her house and like no one came until it was too late. Meanwhile, white girl gets beat up and everyone's there in seconds. So she acknowledges it within the narrative. However, I don't think it's, I don't think it's elaborated enough because Bernadette, her black friend, the, you only see one character that is black and educated in this whole thing and it's literally Candyman, and, and he's a ghost so we don't even count him and bernadette and horror has this very specific trope of ah there's a black person in this they gonna die the so unfortunate, unfortunate trope of like if you've ever watched a friday the 13th movie or yeah one or of the, scary movie or the, anything with craven Anything Wes Craven related, usually, except for except for uh, except for people under the stairs, because that movie is legitimately yeah. like it, it, the lead of that movie is a young black boy. Like that's that's another example of like a good example of representation. I felt I've read a lot so, of positive articles about people under the stairs. So one of my one of my favorite thing about Candyman is like they look at like the um, proximities to race and racial mixing, mm. right? So. Um, when Helen realizes that her condo was a repurposed project that mirrors the Cabrini Green projects, I was, I, I, pers I like noted that immediately. I was like, black proximity to whiteness, white women, she's, as a white woman, she's entering these black spaces and her black friend, who typically would be perceived as like a guiding force in the situation because she would be able to blend, is kind of like tugged along by this white person who doesn't understand the unspoken rules of this environment. Like, she literally goes in dressed like a cop. Mm. And that is one of my, my favorite things. It's kind of like, because um, blackness is intrinsic, but it's also a cultural learning experience. So if you are, for instance, if you're a black person adopted into a white family, raised in a predominantly white environment, there's certain unspoken, like, social constructs that you're not educated in. And that's where kind of like community environments where black people can just be black together exist like churches, hair salons, barber shops. There are all these environments that people engage through their blackness together. So even like if you're in an interracial relationship, so there are certain things, actually even just you and me. So there are certain things you don't understand about my life experience just because by virtue of being a man, you don't experience the world as a woman. This is true. So, if you were to ask like a group of guys, oh, what would you do? Like, like I've had like guy friends, like, you know what's really cool to do? Like going out for a walk at night. I can't relate. 
if my phone's at 75%, I'm not leaving my house. And there's just certain things that is harder to articulate and explain by virtue of you just not being the same gender as me. Exactly. Now, if you add race to that, there are certain things you don't understand of being a person of color because you're a white boy. But there's also like within blackness, there's these like nuanced steps. So me being a woman, me being a person of color, me being child of an immigrant, like there's nuance to it that I feel like are touched upon, but not explored well enough. That's no, I, I am in complete agreement. That's kind of, that's partly the reason I brought you on to do this because I wanted that level of perspective for this conversation. One of the interesting things that I learned from the horror noir documentary and from other articles about Candyman, especially with the character of Helen, that like it helps to have a different perspective on this because I never got this. It is essentially for, you know, from the second act on when she's essentially framed for kidnapping this child and attacking this woman, which she did. But mm -hmm. this, she, someone explained to me, oh, it's basically a white woman like experiencing what it's like to be a minority. Like think about it, the police don't believe her. She's not taken out of her face. She's not, her, her word is not taken at face value. She's like thrown away. No one believes her. She's essentially gaslit because of her situation. No one believes her. They think she's crazy. And like at the end, I also didn't notice this, like in order for her, like her redemption, like during her burning in the large fire, she essentially gets her hair cut off, mm -hmm. which are all very little subtle details that kind of flew over my brain the first time I ever watched it, even upon subsequent rewatches. But getting that extra perspective, I was like, oh, okay, I never got that about the movie. It is a white woman essentially stepping into the shoes of a, of a, of a, of a minority who was not given respect by society and isn't acknowledged for her word of what actually happened. Yeah, and when you add into, so one of my favorite things about the, when Helen is entering this very black space, like when she's at the apartment and when she's exploring and when she's trying to talk to um, the tenant that lived next door, uh, a lot of that was kind of just like, she seems more comfortable than the black person that is with her in this space. So I think that ties into it because it could be the supernatural aspect of that she's Candyman's lover's reincarnation. It could be that, so she feels at home there. It could be the fact that she kind of has more grit to her than the, the soul, the person that you would assume would have more understanding of how certain cultural things work in this world. But again, Bernadette has a proximity to whiteness that the Cabrini Green Project people don't. Hmm. So it's, it's like there's, like, I feel like blackness is a ratio. So like in different, like that's what code switching is for. So in different aspects, like if I'm with like, my friends, I grew up in East New York, Brooklyn, right? So I speak a certain way. My accent is a certain way. Not right now because I'm code switching. But if I'm talking to my brother or if I'm talking to my mom, it's, I sound different. My voice has a different cadence, has a different rhythm and flow to it. Because if, you, if you're coming from a different environment, like whether it's socioeconomic or just like geographically a different environment, you, if you speak to people in the way that they are accustomed to being spoken to, the way that they speak, they're more relaxed around you. Mm-hmm. No, it's like one of the things about this movie that's really interesting that uh, someone else pointed out to me was like, um, what I've gleaned from it is like, you have this kind of, you have this kind of artsy, like educated white girl 
coming into the projects, taking a look at their culture from like, but she's like, she's always appreciated it from a distance. She's just like, it's oh. It's an anthropological study, I honestly think. Yeah, and like, she's like, oh, it's like, I understand all of this. I, I've studied it, I know it so well. Like, I'll have a great handle of the situation when in reality, no, you don't. You don't understand the context of a lot of this stuff. You don't live here, you don't get it. Something that you find like charming and kind of- Quaint. Kind of, quaint is just everyday life to us and is fucking terrifying. We don't get why you find this so charming. So one of the more interesting like concepts in it is she actually, I think she, in terms of how her thesis is structured, I honestly think she gets to the core values of certain things. It's like, this is a traumatized group of people who externalize their trauma and the daily horrors that they, they see in like this boogeyman figure. And that happens. That's how folklores work, right? So um, there's like, even within like Dominican culture, we have something like El Cuco, which is, is like the, our version of the boogeyman where our parents use him as like a discipline thing. Like if you don't behave, El Cuco is going to get you. It's kind of like the, the, like the monster under the bed and stuff like that. But there's a bunch of different ways that trauma is expressed generationally within the black community. So you have, um, just like, even even just like domestic disputes, there's a certain like higher degree that black women will face that. And when you incorporate like queer people into that ratio, it's a lot higher. Um, there's a lot of generational trauma that happens in a black household that is perpetuated and perpetuated and perpetuated because that's all you've known. So one of the things that I've always um, liked to like the highlight is like naming conventions specifically african-american naming conventions uh there's two kind of ways you can go about it um so my mother is from the dominican republic i'm first generation american um but there's i think it's pretty much one-to-one -one with how the african-american community kind of relates either you can go tr super traditional with a name or you can go really the other direction to make them make your children have an easier life so for instance my mother's full name my mother's name is saturnina um, spelled like Saturn and Ina. Not a really easy word for Americans to say. My name would have been Alfonsina, Miss Dodge the Bullet there, but they settled on Hillary. My brother's name is Oscar. I have a traditionally European name to make my life in America a lot easier. So when you bring into the fact that like, there are names in African American vernacular that are African rooted. So you have names like Ashanti, right? That's an African name. That's an actual African word. Um, but then you have words that are like Debrickashaw Ferguson. And the reason why um, these kind of names come up, like that is an aggressively black name. He's a football player, by the way, just, just so you, just so you know. Just so um, you folks at home are wondering. <laughs> yeah, Debrickashaw Ferguson is by far one of my favorite I'm black y'all, I'm black y'all, I'm blackity black, but black, black y'all. Like that's my favorite kind of name. <laughs> Uh, but it's just um the fact that that the next contract is kind of ends into more of value of identity which is interesting because his artistic like his artistic uh background is a backstory you never he, really he is an artist that is like that's see him the, be more of that like every people well, one thing i've always kind of noticed is he kind of he paints he paints with the blood like he is an artist that's what like Candyman. like he's he like he brings like this that's what tony todd brings to the role he brings like this kind of suave kind of 
cocktail party elegance to the role, despite the fact because that he's, he's goring. Society. Exactly. That's what his character is rooted in. He was he was yeah. this guy who came to these rich, affluent places and painted these. Yeah, but that's proximity to whiteness. <laughs> like he enjoyed he enjoyed a certain level of privilege by virtue of being a first of all a freed man that is a very important dynamic he is the son of a former slave so he comes from a legacy of freedom in that in that sense so he's already at an a, like above a certain caste within the american slave system and then you add he's well educated he can read he can paint he's a skilled person in this like of course he's going to enjoy that proximity and he kind of always has this air of superiority in that sense. It is. And the fact that his victims are poor, like undereducated black people in the projects kind of speaks to, even within like the black community, there's like kind of like a doggy dog kind of world. Like you can't get yours because I'm getting mine and there's not enough room at this table. Yeah, honestly, yeah. Like, no, I love no like the film has all of these like subtle metaphors a lot of overt and subtle ones at the same kind of going along concurrently with each other another theme that the film a, mo- a motif of the film that they use quite frequently is bees and honey play a very big role in the film both visually and in his backstory he was stung by bees that's how he yeah. died and like it, like one of the the big like money shots of the movies where he like opens his, his chest mouth, up, yeah. his mouth, and just bees start pouring out. And that ain't, this was 1992. This ain't no bullshit CGI yeah. fakery. Like Tony Todd and Virginia Madsen legitimately had to have bees put in their mouths and like all over them, which is not fun because I believe Virginia Madsen has gone on record saying like, uh, I'm allergic to bees. And, and two, that's a great movie to do, sweetie. Yeah. And Tony Todd, I believe he got stung. I have an article here. Oh my God, this poor man. I believe he, uh, he got stung so many times. He, had, he got, he, he got a $1,000 bonus for every bee sting that he got. And I think he ended up making like 23,000 extra dollars doing this movie because he got stung so much. I've been stung by a bee a total of once and have never done that again. No, oh, it's, it, it, it burns. It, they yeah. bur- it's literally like it's sticking you with a cigarette. It's terrible. So um, an interesting thing about uh, Tony Todd specifically is that I feel like Candyman influenced a lot of his other roles. Yeah, so, he's never like, fully. He was, when he, he, was, he was death in um, Final Destination, right? So Well, he, yes and no. He plays kind of, he plays this mortician that pops up again and again and again in the series. He's kind of like the one recurring character in the franchise. And he always, it's always been a fan theory that he's death, but the films themselves have never fully confirmed it. But he still uses that, like, Candyman, be my victim kind of cadence to his that's why. That's why I think, I think, honestly, it's fair to, wow, this guy, this man looks like he has no neck now. I'm sorry. Uh, I was on Wikipedia. But um, he... I think it's fair enough, like, he's a reoccurring character in this thing of predestination. Uh, I think it's fair to say he's death, because he's the one that kind of, like, gives the victims, like, the, 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 the lowdown of what's going the, on. The, uh, I believe the kids call it a exposition dump. Yeah, that's, that's exactly what he does. But it's kind of like, even if he's not explicitly the cause of it, he's evoking it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you, you, 
like he evokes a certain kind of gravitas to a role, especially because he has that deep voice and it's like like all of that, all of that kind of you know what it is it's um if you give any other actor like the skeleton of who Candyman was, I don't think it would have the same impact it wouldn't have he's already a kind of domineering figure, <laughs> like he's already kind of scary. No, it's like, I, I don't really see how any other actor could have done. In fact, one of the things I learned while doing some research with this movie, one of the people who was uh, considered for the role of Candyman, and I'm not even kidding, was Eddie Murphy of all people. That's just, just because of a scare. That's all that it is. It's kind of like when you have um, like a grossly miscasted people be, just by virtue because they kind of fit the type. Mm-hmm. Or like they like, have name, or they have that name recognition value to them. Like Eddie yeah, Murphy is a mean, big star. In terms of yeah, in terms of black celebrities, we already have two Michael Jordans. We don't need another one. We we are we we, we have we we are thank you. We already have one. We good. Yeah, like but in all honesty, I just... every time yeah. No, when you watch a Robert De Niro movie, you're going to get a Robert De Niro performance. When you watch an Eddie Murphy performance, you're going to get an Eddie Murphy performance. And when but I. I honestly feel Tony was the right call for this part. And I feel like it's kind of defined him for the rest of his career, but in a good way, he did, um, he did a season of the flash a few years ago. He voiced one of the villains that kept recurring professor zoom. And it's basically just a distorted version of the Candyman voice, but you know what? It's Tony Todd. I'll take it. I'll, I'll, any chance to hear him talk. I'll, I'll, I'll totally be down for that's why I love that character. So in terms of the, um, the, like, the symbolism of, like, the honeycomb, or, like, even just, like, like, hive and, sorry, rewind. Like, the symmetry of, like, honeycombs and, like, that geometric pattern. A lot of the uh, visual cues that I saw throughout the whole movie was, like, these top-down perspectives. I love oh. those, by the way. Oh, my I God. Anything the that's, like, a wide. With the words moving on the highway. Like, and uh-huh. I love that shot at the very opening. He's given that even that monologue about like splitting you from your groin to your gullet and mm-hmm. i love how he like i love how you'll have this like large shot of the city and just a swarm of bees <laughs> amassing yep. behind the city landscape and that oh god i love that shot it's so good it's um it's super good but my my thing about it is just like a lot of this a lot of this is like really wide shots to a very singular area of chicago Mm-hmm. which I like. It's kind of like uh, things get lost in like the shuffle. So just this hyperfixation on this one area and then kind of narrowing the scope down to then the honey, then the, the shot with the, with the bees. Like everything is kind of all leading to a specific area. And that's where the, um, the bonfire is happening and where the mural is. It's like you mentioned, you mentioned the bonfire and the mural, and that, that brings up an important thing. So before we segue into discussing the sequel coming up, we should discuss the ending of this movie and like what actually goes down in it so we can like have proper context for that. Because I don't think a lot of people get that. The new one coming up is not a remake. It is an actual sequel follow-up to yeah. this movie, which I find weird that they would just call it Candyman. But then again, like they called the Halloween reboot Halloween again. So like... So the way the way like reboots happen it's kind of like you have the sequels the originals and then you have like the spiritual successor with the same name which is either a reimagining or an actual like an actual like continuation of like a Mm storyline so the benefit of it being a like a gentle like continuation of that storyline is that it's not 
held to the timeline that existed in, in, the, pre in the previous ones, you get to introduce new people. Um, and you can drop certain aspects of the things that came bef after the original and before this reboot. Mm -hmm. One major example of like, I feel like we're past the era of like the hard reboot of a series. I think we're done with that. I feel like that was the, the that was like 2000 to like 2010. I feel like that kind yeah. of I feel like that kind of died with the Elm Street reboot and all that shit. Mm, no, I think it died with the Ring reboots. <clears throat> oh, specifically God. when they had to. I I honestly okay so horror specifically as a genre of film is one of my favorites because a lot of it is showcasing the anxieties of a society at the time it was made that's why you have a lot of like giant bug movies and radioactivity movies in the in the in the cold war era because they're worried about nuclear holocaust zombie movies originally were a lot about like like the invasion of like minorities into white spaces and then now it's about immigration that's where you get your world war z's um 70s but, was when like a lot of like legitimate like psycho killers and stuff were making the yeah. news ed gein like Ted Bundy, a lot of these guys, and like that's where yeah. Texas Chainsaw, that's where Psycho came from, that's where, like you know, if there was no Texas Chainsaw, there'd be no Halloween. If there was no Halloween, there'd be no Friday the Thirteenth. And even 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 Halloween or uh, Texas Chainsaw, it's also like Texarkana mm -hmm. and the Zodiac and those murders, like a lot of that, like all of these tied into it. But um, horror as like they exist in the context they're created in. So if you have, that's why a lot of like these Japanese. American reboots don't work in the context in America and they have to like shoehorn a lot of stuff in there just to make it fit the context. So the Ring the Ring uh series is you have to under there's like a deep understanding about like how curses and like spirits white people into that narrative who don't understand that context. We're you have to understand we're looking at this from a western perspective. So not only are the characters not in the right context, we are as the audience are not primed to be in the same context. Exactly. So, it loses a lot of its meaning by virtue of removing it from its original source. Something that would make contextual and cultural sense in like say Japanese culture might not work the same way it for a Western audience. Yeah, so an example of that in yes. like a mainstream like anime series would be um, in My Hero Academia, the main character, his name is Midoriya, his nickname from his childhood bully and friend, whatever that relationship is, is Deku. So, in the English, that name comes from the fact that Midoriya's first name is Izuku, and he is quirkless, so he is defenseless. Defenseless Izuku, Deku. That's the context that that name exists. They had to, right? In Japanese, Deku's name comes from this doll who is useless. So, there's already a word that kind of sounds like this, and it's a pun on that. And that's within the cultural context. And that makes way more sense than defenseless Izuku Deku. Like the the leaps people, even in the Death Note remake. Oh God, keeping it, no. Keeping it to horror, Light Turner chose the name Kira because in Slavic, it means light. Slavic in Russian, it means light. But in Japanese, it also means killer. Versus... God. This is the name the public gave me because it evokes this in Japanese. Like you, you, you spend like all that money, all that time, and you get Willem Dafoe to be Ryuk, which is an inspired casting choice. And you, oh god, like just you brought back flashbacks 
of the Death Note movie. <laughs> oh my God! No, I have no uh, doubt. What's his name? Um, what's it? Nat Wolf from like the Naked. No, Brothers not Nat film. Wolf. Who played Black L? Uh, Lakeith 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 Stanfield. Lakeith Stanfield. Who is an amazing actor? Oh, he's so good. So. The thing about Death Note specifically as a horror film is it's not a horror show. It's a psychological thriller. So they tried to make it horror by upping the gore, which in American contexts, that makes sense. But in the structure of the narrative, no, it don't. I've been in this game long enough to know that just because you make a horror film gorier doesn't mean it's actually going to be better. I've, yeah. uh, I've been in this game just long enough to know that, but tell you what, we'll, we'll save, we'll just, we'll discuss the, uh, we'll, we'll save the Death Note reboot. And for a later episode. For, for a later episode at some point, because I guarantee, we'll just do a whole episode of just bad live action anime adaptations, because that would be a whole episode into it of itself, but let's. That's, that's great. But let's focus, we'll just bring the discussion of the original yeah. to a close. So the original ends with the Helen character going back to Caprini Green, heading into this like, wicker man style bonfire bonfire, yeah. bonfire for a party which i don't understand so they don't develop cabrini green like as a community at all <laughs> like mm. okay so cabrini green is a backdrop to helen's story of getting of unraveling this mystery of this urban legend which is not an urban legend it's actually real mm. the issue with that is you get this image of it's dangerous it's dirty and it's full of gangsters and thugs and drug dealers which in all intents and purposes for most projects is the case but there's cookouts there's a rich like community aspect like you have people watching each other's kids to make sure that they're good and i grew up in an environment with drug dealers i have drug dealers that live in my building i'm not telling you where i live because i'm not a snitch but they're also just like their kids live here too so mm -hmm. there if there's something illegal going on a lot of times these pe these men would like tell the older kids hey go inside in the hallway play there for a little bit and then it's there's a community of people that care about each other and i feel like because cabrini green is only used as a backdrop for helen's narrative it loses a little bit of the life that would make sense in that. Well, the funny thing I've learned is apparently they didn't really, they didn't have extras for those scenes. They just went to the communities, went to these housing projects and just asked the residents, hey, you want to be in a movie? <laughs> and a lot of these, yeah. a lot of these thugs and stuff were just like, fuck yeah, I want to be in a movie. I want to be in Hollywood. Yeah. So yeah, they fucking, they were just like, hell yeah, I'll be in a movie. They, they, they got these legit Yeah, people. but it's not even, it's, it's, it's not even about, extras though it's just like it's the framing of a community mm. of people so it's kind of like uh the one saving grace is the little boy uh, i think his name is jay no jay yeah jake the little boy um and the mother whose baby gets stolen anna marie anna marie who pops up again in the reboot trailer and we'll discuss that in a minute as so like, i am so excited yeah but the th they go down this whole there's a storyline where that candy man has basically kidnapped this woman's baby partially to frame helen to kind of begin her psychological collapse and to kind of 
he kind of uses the baby as a bartering ship. He's like, hey, if you yeah. if you go away with me forever and you die with me and et cetera, et cetera, I will release this child. But of course, Candyman is a lying piece of shit, so he's gonna he's not gonna do that. And the Caprini Green sees, I love this, like she has her own hook to go kill him, and the kid sees someone with a hook going into this like pile. And he's like, shit, we got to burn Candyman alive. So they set this thing on fire. Candyman is not, he's not a story to these people. No. So just like, you know what, you know what I like? The ambiguity of the beginning murder and like the kid being attacked in the bathroom, all of that kind of situation. Because they create just for the first third they create this ambiguity of maybe it's the legend is real but they're just like thugs using this name for notoriety yeah. like they leave which is just, also true it's just true but yeah. like they leave just enough breadcrumbs but then it's not around like act two and she realizes oh shit he's actually real <laughs> the, but the, but the thing is about it is that these are all happening parallel to each other mm-hmm not not even parallel like these are happening at the same time so while helen's assumption like oh that this myth is just a way for these people to externalize their trauma and find something to blame it on they take it 100 percent seriously they like you have jake was like oh candy man's candy man's gonna get me if you don't like candy man's gonna get me because like you're gonna get me now because of your purposes snitch exactly yeah it's, it's that's, a total it's a total snitch situation it's like any man's gonna get me because you couldn't keep your fucking mouth shut and you couldn't stay out of our fucking business but but the truth of the matter is black communities are focused on trust like there's a lot of don't say nothing because it's not yours to say it's a lot of just so, there's fucking, a, stay quiet yeah. on that one <laughs> Yeah, but it's also just like, you are, like, the way I think about it is, there are several things you do not do in a black woman's house. You don't talk back to her. You don't go in nobody's fridge. And you don't hear. There are certain things that, when I was growing up, is, by virtue of the way laws work, illegal. Like, leaving me alone. But my mom worked several jobs, and I didn't have a dad. So, I got, I stayed home alone with my brother. That's the virtue, but like I was taught, don't open the door for nobody, don't touch nothing. Don't, like that is the context that I grew up in, and that is my normal. Yeah. Is it normal? Probably. It, it, it's a case by case thing for many people, and like uh, your upbringing was clearly different than mine, and like that again, but that also talks to the situation in this movie of just like, hey, she's, she's my point is. She's coming into this environment. She doesn't understand. She thinks she has an understanding of it, but she is hopelessly out of her depth. It's one thing to understand something anthropo- like anthropologically, like as a, as a scholar of a from a, di- topic, from a distance. Argument could be like certain things viewed as universal. Love songs, uh, feeling jealousy, like emo- certain emotions are universal, but like I feel like context that things are written about in completely matter depending on who you are. Beyonce's Lemonade, amazing, beautiful, heartbreaking music means a lot of things when you're black. Black woman, that album means more to me than it mean. No, um, that's again, it's a yeah. cultural thing. Like it's like for perception, culture, it's all it's all relative within that. Yeah, even even when even when she was performing uh, Coachella, 
um, a lot of her homecoming tour was evoking black homecoming at HBCUs with the step teams and the jackets and black fraternities and oh my god it was so good and the band uh, a lot of it was just an experience it's a cultural reset um, and so, so it's just like when she goes into when she goes into the this space she's not welcome they initially meet her with yeah no like my experience that's the, not universal the thing but eventually but she is sort of accepted at the very end because like she's able to successfully like save this baby who will be important later she saves this baby and returns it back to the mother and when she you know she burns to death and she dies and at her funeral later all the citizens of caprini green come to essentially honor <laughs> honor this woman who did a very nice thing for them and now that enough people know who she is, remember her and how she died, a legend is born. And when that happens, her piece of shit ex-husband who was fucking around on her when she got- Not even ex-husband. He never divorced her. Never divorced her. He her was just cheating as fuck. His, her cheating ass like uh, professor husband is cheating around with one of his students. Classy move there, bud. He, he yeah. He fucking, he, 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 he's wrought with guilt about this as well he should be. He says her name five times in the mirror and she looking like with her scalp all burnt up with her own hook shows looks up. So she looks so, still looking great. Virginia Madsen is so fly in this movie. She looks so good. God. She so looks good. so good in this movie. So but like, that she still she looks great it. even in this like nightgown with like a hook. And I was like, and she's like, she, she's like, like, you look scared. And then she fucking just, hatchets him to fucking death and the movie just ends on this like the student just finding him just split open in the bathtub and the movie ends on a new mural of her in caprini green because she is now the now the candy man is dead he's burned to death she is now the new sort of legend the new boogeyman that'll sort of fuel people for years to come and that's and again it again another literal urban legend founded upon the story that she lived. Uh, yeah, my my favorite thing about the iconography in the last scene is that the mural of her burning, she look she she is essentially martyred for the people yeah. of Caprini, which she is more herself. than anyone for them. She martyrs herself, it's she dies, she thing. gets she gets this kid back and now the community is like, okay, now we'll we'll we'll, we'll tell the story of this woman who did a very nice thing for years to come, but the flip side of that is that's this this cult of personality around her legend has now kind of turned her into the new Candyman figure of this universe, and that that's and that's where the movie ends. It's it's yeah. a fitting ending because like she. I it's honestly love the role reversal. Yes, uh, like, no, she goes hunting. She goes hunting for an urban legend, and by the end of it, she ends up becoming one, which is which yeah. is so perfect. I love that so much, but we're not fully done yet because the remake, which I hope and pray will still be coming out next month is focused heavily on plot elements set up in this first movie. And we are going to, and we're going to talk about that after we just take a quick little break.
And we are back. We are still here with Hillary Brito. We are discussing Candyman, its legacy, and the upcoming reboot. And before we dive into our discussion, our brief discussion of the upcoming reboot, uh, we're going to take a quick minute aside and we're just going to take a look at the trailer one more time. So if you're playing along at home, we're taking a look at the official trailer from the Universal Pictures YouTube page. And this is audio, so Universal, you can't sue me. So uh, here we go in three, two, one. The urban legend is, if you say his name five times while looking in the mirror, he appears in the reflection and kills you. Who would do that? Candyman. 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 Well, we're still alive. <laughs> Let's go. Trina, you've broken the door. This isn't funny! I feel really connected to this neighborhood. Cabrini Green. It was a project. I just moved in around the corner. The old candy factory. I'm an artist. You look up a candy man. He's the monster that's part of this neighborhood. Why are you drawn to this? I'm hoping to spread the story all about Candyman. The mirror invites you to summon him. You should say his name. I dare you. Candyman. 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 Don't. Don't say that. Candyman. I brought him back. Candyman isn't real! Something's happening to me. He had a purpose for you to be another one of his terrible stories. I guess he found me. I am the writing on the wall. The sweetest smell of blood. I don't know about you, but I'm hype. <laughs> I love this trailer. It's one of my favorite kinds of trailers because it doesn't show everything. It doesn't show the whole plot per se, but it shows you enough that you know it's not going to be the same movie. Exactly. So the what the the plot we can glean from this trailer is that this is the baby from the from the original film, all grown up, and they even bring back his mother, Anne Marie who has not aged a day, by the way. That actress has like- Black don't crack. I, I, you said it, I didn't, but like, no, but like, no, everything about this trailer is so, is, I feel it's in tune with the original, but like, it, it's, a, it's a welcome, like modern refurbishing of like everything that worked with it. I love, I love how he's turning this into an art exhibit and i love how like there's an installation as a mirror you can 
refused to contact him. This is just inviting all kinds of bad shit to happen. This is what I like to call Caucasian bullshit. Yeah. Like, things in, certain, certain things in horror movies. It's Caucasian exist. bullshit. Not even, no, not even just Caucasian, like those kids in the front, in the beginning. Oh God, who would do that? Cuts to like five. Like at school. Cuts to five dumb. Who, who would who would say his name? Five yeah, but it's, it's five dumbass white bitches doing. It's 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 a, it's no like there are certain so, I have like a, whenever I watch a horror movie with one of my friends, they're like, "What would you do in this situation?" I was like, first of all, I'm not leave. white. I wouldn't be in this situation. Like leave. you're telling me I'm gonna get a you're gonna you're telling me I'm gonna get a mortgage, but there's a random trap door with like a pentagram on it. Like I'm not getting that house. I'm no. not in this house. The moment something goes south for me, I'm bouncing. Anyway, um, what I really like about it, though, is kind of like they're clever in a way that they're getting around a very specific issue where when you have an actor that is such is, is so identifiable as the character, having him be evoked and like hinted at versus being the, the actual threat and it seems to be more like a possession kind of situation where he's yeah. being turned into like a new reiteration of the Candyman. Like it's a curse that gets passed down to people. The fact that he is a, the main character is an artist. Um, I feel like there's going to be more parallels with this protagonist and with the mythos of like the legend itself because he's studying it, because he's exhibiting it and he's spreading it. I feel like there's going to be a period, like the, in the movie, my speculation is, is like, um, in some way, shape, or form, he's going to be forced to be a disciple of Candyman. Mm-hmm. Like, and you get, you get, like, they do a little distortion to it, but I'm pretty sure that that's Tony Todd's, like, reflection, re- reflection there at the end, and you mm-hmm. hear his, you hear his, like, I am, I am the, I, I am the writing on the wall, I am the sweet smell of blood, and of course, they gotta end the trailer with Be My when Victim. When he walks, when he walks by this car, and he sees his reflection, he sees Tony Todd, like, and I was like, I'm excited. I'm very it. excited. And that, that's why I'm so, okay, listen, like I am always a proponent of like films getting their theater release regardless of circumstance, but clearly right now that's not the yeah. case. So you know what? If fine folks, you, streaming. fine folks at Universal, it worked very well with The Invisible Man, which was another great horror film I recommend. But like, if you, if you guys just want to put this out on VOD for like 15, 20 bucks, I will buy it. I don't yeah. care. I want to watch it. I will pay for it because I want to see this director and I want to see these people do more things. You know, so if I've it's noticed good. something. I've noticed something very interesting about like a lot of movies that I watch. Um, there's always this wise old black man, and like in every movie, <laughs> every film like, ever. Like that's like that's like that's like Morpheus from the Matrix. Like yeah. the proximity to the. Uh, you know what I also think? Um, if the protagonist is the baby from the original, um, from the original movie, what could also be an interesting context that they're talking about is just like when you don't live in that environment anymore, you're a degree removed from this epicenter of like of being black, like urban black, and authenticity of being urban black. And there's a lot of kids, specifically like. I think a lot of kids in Queens who um, who grew up in solidly like lower to middle class households, like lower middle class, and try to act like they're not from the middle class. Like they're trying to act like the, I call it hood adjacent. Mm. So like, hood adjacent. I feel like this is, 
yeah, hood adjacent. Like you grew up in proximity to it. You didn't grow up in it. Like that, that's like saying, oh, I grew up, I grew up in the Chelsea projects. I'm like, no, no, no. You grew up in Chelsea. The projects were there. Okay. That kind no, of situation. And so you're saying that this character, given like his artist motif to his character is more hood adjacent and like he's moving back into this neighborhood to yeah. reconnect to so he can be like authentic hood and like imbue yeah. that into his art but also like the projects have improved since when he was a since his mother lived there mm -hmm. typically that's what happens with gentrification um that's something to be explored uh, no, gentrification. gentrification obviously um, yeah but just like moving away from a, a certain kind of environment and then moving back into it as an adult without the same experience culturally are gonna it's like a bit of a shock it's a talking so, point which i hope the film goes into but you mentioned gentrification if we, before we dive back in more uh, the original kind of for its time in the 90s it did talked about gentrification just a little bit like the apartment she hey. lives in is a repurposed project they talked they talked about it's more of a the zoning of neighborhoods mm -hmm. so act, one of the most interesting things about new york and how like housing environments are created is that they're really they're really separate they're really segregated mm -hmm. um and because schools are funded by the income tax like like however like much income tax or mortgage or whatever like property tax and stuff like that um typically affluent white neighborhoods have affluent white schools and the same thing the reverse is also true for underserved uh underutilized like underfunded minority schools so um new york specifically has a really weird issue with this and that's why we have a very complicated busing system with within like the public school system my uh i went to college for education fun fact and history so this is why i know this um but the um the aspect of oh yeah they created this housing development here to act as a barrier between the 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 ghetto and white people and mm -hmm. that's very true so even if you were to um like if you were to go if you were to go like north of 116th street like into into like harlem into the heights that is a very different experience from south of that oh yeah so for me, I went to high school in, um, it was a school called Manhattan Center in East, it was in East Harlem, in the heart of East Harlem, um, right by the East River, as you can hear from the accent that's coming out. Um, but what I realized was I don't trust, I don't trust a lot of things from outside of a certain environment. Like I don't trust things that are not my local bodega. So I don't trust a chopped cheese that's made south of eight, like 86th Street. These are the decisions that separate the boys from the men and the girls from the women. These are the decisions that, these are the smart life choices that guarantee success. Yeah, I mean, like, okay, so in the new, in the new, in the Tom Holland Spider-Man series, right? Okay, you know how he is, he is a kid from Queens, and like when he goes into his bodega and he's speaking Spanish to, to his guy because he's talking about his aunt, you know, that feels authentically grounded in the environment that it exists in like he feels like he's from new york no he's absolutely that is york. as someone who fully I'm, this is the first time i'm fully admitting this like anywhere but like I, I like i like tom holland i don't i don't like the newer spider-man movies like i'm gonna admit that but i feel his i feel he captures the true essence of what it's like to be a kid from queens like i love how like it'll especially from a guy a grown man from england 
Yeah. No, he, he sold that well, especially given those circumstances. But I love the the subtle inflections he'll do with his voice. Like, I love how to be like... I'm joking. I'm joking. I'm joking. I'm joking. It'll be like, Mr. Stock. Like, it'll come out every... It'll, it'll pop in every so often. You know what it is? He also... Yeah. You know what it is? It's actually a very subtle uh, generational shift. Um, mm-hmm. Brooklyn has one of the thickest accents besides Long Island, I think, in New York. So, like, Brooklyn and the Bronx, they have, like, a very specific sound to them. Like, you can tell that Cardi B is from the Bronx. You can tell that Jennifer Lopez is from the Bronx. Um, For me, like, my accent is a lot – like, the letter R does not exist in my natural speaking accent. It obviously does in this one because this is my, like – this is the code switch that I use. I had to learn how to speak like this. So for me, like if like for me, a that's already one. It's it's there are these little subtle things that come up and crop in, and you can hear it within the characters in the trailer that I really like. When she's, don't say that. I clapped. Sorry. Um, oh, it's fine. Uh, her voice is different from her son's. If yep. that is her son, um, and that kind of speaks to him growing. Like he could gr- he could grow up in Chicago. But there's a difference between growing up in Chicago in like like the Caprini Green projects or Southside or anywhere north of I don't know anything about Chicago. I'm from New York. Ah, I stand my my city. Um, but even just the fact that he doesn't have the same accent or cadence to his own voice is also just a it denotes something different about his upbringing. You can tell a lot about a person by how they speak, and you can tell a lot about a person by how they don't. Mm-hmm. So one hundred percent. Yeah. So specifically, like black people get policed a lot and how they talk because so one of the things that white people don't understand about like AVVA um sorry yeah uh african-american vernacular is there are grammar rules that exist so we can tell when someone actually doesn't talk like that so for instance like oh you be tripping a lot of white people would hear that and be like that's grammatically incorrect but there's a concept called the habitual b that exists in African-American English, that makes it make sense. Mm-hmm. Like it's, African-American English is not a broken English. It is a dialect of English spoken primarily by African-American people and African-American people, or like the African diaspora, like it's a thing. So if I say like, oh, you be tripping or he wallin, like all of that makes sense in the context that I'm speaking in. Mm-hmm. So just off from jump because bro does not talk like that it tells you he's in he's in like more again white adjacent spaces so it's kind of like the reverse of helen's story where she's predominantly she's a white woman predominantly in a white environment collegiate environments are white um for my fellow minorities going to the first year of college if you feel stressed and burnt out it's because you're exhausted socially hang out with some black kids trust me um (laughs) but uh but it's it, there's like a there's like a level of like mirroring here, which I really like in terms of like the way the narrative structure of like it seems like the sequel is gonna go, where you have a predominantly white character, in a predominantly white institution, going into a black environment, but then you have a black man who is artistic, uh, who is in an art field. Art in and of itself is a very white space. It wasn't until like the Harlem Renaissance where you see like this flourishing of like black. Even radio. now, even now, it's yeah. still hard for people of color to break into like the seriously like you're, if you want like it's it's hard it's easy to like anyone can like break into art and like throw their hat into the ring like but like yeah. it's it's harder it's 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 infinitely harder for a person of color to kind of break into like that consistent like 
five to six figure salary like making yeah. this as a living artist like it's yeah but it's, it's also just like there are also like archetypes that are created for black creatives to exist in mm-hmm. so like either you are like either you are supposed to be this hard gangster rapper or you're not and mm-hmm. one of the interesting things is like chance the rapper is a rapper from Chicago. And I think he kind of toes this line. A lot of people don't like his music because all he talks about is God, his family, and his wife, which is great because his experiences is growing up in the church. Not really, like, he grew up around gangbangers and he was a kid that smoked weed, but, like, he wasn't up. He's not about that life. So there's a lot of policing of, like, Black creativity in the sense that, like, oh, you're not authentic because you didn't struggle. And I'm like, that doesn't necessarily undermine certain other life experiences but it seems like he's going uh this character is going into caprini green with fresh eyes like an artistic eye like with the it's kind of like the reverse of helen who's going in there with an anthropological mindset Mm -hmm. um he's going in there for like kind of creating and like spreading this mythos and stuff like that problematic as fuck if my mom did that clap at me i know for a fact that i'm not playing with i'm playing with something i should not be touching and in that scene he understands that yeah not like she's just she's just like that's probably that's probably like after something has already gone wrong and he's he has to talk to his mom we will we'll definitely see where that goes when the film properly comes out hopefully in june we will see if they stick they haven't delayed it yet they haven't pushed it back as of right now and considering that it's universal it's the same company that put out invisible man vod also Mm -hmm. concurrently with theaters i'm hoping that this gets that same treatment so i can still watch it on its intended date and i am very much looking forward to it so before we wrap it up what are some what are some like positive like rep- uh, examples of people in color in terms of a starring role and in terms of like creative behind the scenes that you would like push in terms of the horror genre that you would promote? In terms of the horror genre? Hmm. hmm. I mean, Jordan Peele's like, all his work is really meh. For me, um, in terms of genre, you know what's interesting? It's not even it's not even horror, but it's like horrifying. Uh, what's her name? In terms of black creatives that I want to like push to the forefront, Ava uh, uh, Duvernay. Watch like Thirteenth. The that is sad. <laughs> that is more uh, relative to the. Experience experience of like intersection of race justice and mass incarceration um not really horror but horrifying um in terms of so my thing is there's two kinds of ways of watching movies uh good ones and really bad ones in my opinion in my opinion a bad movie is i've said this to you before a bad movie is better than a boring movie because you can still have fun with it so what are some bad movies so my favorite kind of bad bad black movies are literally any Tyler Perry movie because they're all the same. Um, the Man in 2B, horrible, amazing. Um, <laughs> and Ma, starring Octavia oh, Spencer. I, I've seen, I have, I have tangled with the, uh, Ma might have to be its own episode because that is, uh, mm-hmm. I, I might have to bring in my boy Matthew Koffler for that one as well because he saw that movie and he literally texted me 20 minutes after seeing it, Ben, this is one of the stupidest things I've ever seen in my goddamn life. Octavia, Octavia Spencer is too good of, a, of an actress to be in this movie. However, um, 
the one thing I really appreciate about that movie is I went to see it in a black theater. So there's, if you've never watched a horrible movie starring a black prominent actress as a villain in a black theater, it is like two shows for one. It is an experience. I would recommend it to just watch it. It's so good. But anyway, um, I think horror as like as a genre has not been the kindest to black folk. So um, there's a lot of times where you want to watch a movie that is like, when can I watch something where I'm just a black kid just watching something without it being about slavery, without it being about racism, without it being about uh, a woman getting beat by her dark-skinned husband and then like having a light-skinned guy help her every Tyler Perry movie. Um, I think the quintessential crowning glory of like black kids in media has to be uh, Miles Morales, Spider-Man, Into the Spider-Verse. Spider-Verse still. Into I, I've, the Spider-Verse I've seen... would be my top pick as a, as a fan because Prowler, Prowler's theme is the most unsettling music I've heard in a very long time. Yeah. As a black horror fan who loves black horror, that is actually a pretty effective uh, visual motif in terms of Uncle Aaron, the Prowler, spoiler alert. Mm-hmm. Um, Note to self, do a Spider-Verse episode. <laughs> but yeah, like, um, that movie does a lot to scare me in a context that's not scary, which I, I think is something that a lot of horror movies lack. Mm-hmm. They, like, I feel like, especially with ultraviolence or, um, or gore for the sake of gore, uh, I think a lot of, I, I prefer being uneasy mm-hmm. and unsettled. Um, and that makes me anxious and that makes me scared. So again, when um, he's in he's in the apartment waiting for his uncle and then he realizes that the Prowler's coming in and it's quiet until he realizes that he's in there and then the Prowler theme goes, whew, the level of anxiety cannot be matched. That is uh, my favorite, I think that's my favorite scene of the whole movie. Just when the, oh God, when they introduce him is so good. Oh god, no. We we will dedicate a whole again, a whole a whole that's a yeah. whole other episode. We'll dedicate a whole episode to Spider-Verse down the line cuz I'm down to talk about that movie at nauseum forever. I've seen a lot of animated movies since since Spider-Verse and a lot have been great, but they ain't been Spider-Verse. <laughs> that makes me sad. You know what it was? Sp- Spider-Verse again, he is it's an alternate universe, but he is a black kid Spider-Man who is half Spanish. He is Afro-Latino. First of all, people don't talk about this enough. He is Afro-Latino, meaning when his mother is saying mijo, I was like weeping sweet tears. Oh my god. He is not just a black kid from Brooklyn. He is a black Hispanic kid from Brooklyn. And I am all of those things. So I adore Miles Morales because he is basically like if I if I if he was a girl, if he was a girl, perfect. However, him as a as just this kid who is just under a lot of pressure. He's a naturally smart kid. He gets into this great school and he has to live up to these great expectations, themes. Whoo! I love I love so, Miles Morales. So, so Spider good. Spider-Verse episode coming soon. But to wrap it up, obviously, Candyman, the 1992 film, is an absolute gem. If you've never seen it, it's on Netflix like right fucking now. You have no excuse. The remake comes out next month. It comes out in June, hopefully. Universal, you do the smart thing here. Please let it out. 
but that movie will be coming out then. If you have no excuse, watch the original, turn the lights out for this one. It's so good. And it, I feel like even though it's still, it gets a good amount of respect, I still feel like Candyman isn't talked in the same regard as Freddy Krueger or Chucky or Freddy Krueger. So I feel it's, like uh, Voorhees. Yeah, it's just a, a combination of, it's a cult classic. Um, it's catering to a very specific demographic. Um, and I just think that a lot of things that are created with the context of blackness are not viewed as popular until blackness is becoming mainstream, which it You're is unfortunate. now. Unfortunately. Yeah. Um, in terms of Candyman, if you, uh, perks of it as a horror fan, if you like um, more of like an unraveling of a tale, like a slow burn, Candyman is definitely more on that line. Um, it's also very jump scare friendly, meaning mm-hmm. um, not cheap with their scares. No, they earn not- every jump scare in this movie yeah. is earned. It has proper buildup, it has proper mm-hmm. suspense, and just they do a few fake outs, but they're earned and they work. Yeah, and even when you when you also have to take into like the time period that it's created in, so like certain visuals look a little janky now. However, for the time, mwah, c'est magnifique, my guy, chef's kiss. Chef's but, kiss, indeed. Yeah, <laughs> it's a good combination of the gore, the body horror kind of situation without it being kind of gratuitous because again that b scene is a money shot we so only get god that. that's the we great thing that one. even if you've never seen the movie you know about that scene where it's just a rib cage full mm-hmm. of bees and he's mm-hmm. just french kissing with a mouth full of just hornets it's so goddamn disgusting but it's so it's it's so amazing and it's a true testament to the wonders of special effects that are not cg so i'm just like thank yeah. god Oh, Tony Todd I, and Virginia Madsen had like brass fucking balls of steel to go through with a scene. Like if I'd read a script and I saw that, I'd have bolted. Because I hate Also, bugs. their chemistry, I, their chem, okay. So one of my favorite things about these situations of like these star-crossed lovers, also like a weird, dark, twisted fantasy kind of situation is just like their chemistry was actually palpable. They actually, they're kind of charming she together. Wa- she, she wanted to fuck a ghost. She did. Quite honestly, it wasn't yeah. until that bees thing that he did. I honestly think if he didn't do that, you know, and I'll ask you, I'll ask you honestly, even as a dude who's like bisexual, I can like see mm-hmm. these things like objectively and judge for myself. But I gotta ask you, as a as a girl, do Candyman, do, yay or nay? You think he, you think he's cute? So, the thing about being a queer woman is that I um, am terrified of women and uh, reluctantly attracted to men. So. There are specific things that I find attractive. And for me, that has to do with how scary can you be without being actually terrifying to me, like physically threatening. But like that voice, that that voice, it's just the voice, the cadence. He never rushes whatever he's saying. Everything is at his own pace. Um, So as a horror icon, as like a sex symbol horror icon, Candyman is not the most attractive aesthetically because he's not supposed to be but what he kind of does in terms of his his uh his energy his like his vibe is everything to me <laughs> it's so good so good yeah. indeed and this and this episode was so good so thank you so much for jumping on here with me and i know podcasts aren't typically your venue but i think you did a fantastic job with this and thank you thank so much you. for this is my first one thank you so much for coming on and giving your very unique perspective on this which added so much to the conversation and if the if the fine folks 
listening at home, like all 15 of them want to find you. Mm -hmm. Like, I, I hope there's more and it's steadily growing, but yeah, I'm fine with it. But if the fine folks at home want to find you and see what you're up to and see your thoughts and images on things, like where can they find you? Um, I predominantly just stick to Instagram. So my Instagram is at uh, Hillary Banks and Bougie. Like Fresh Prince of Bel-Air and Bougie like the song because I'm not clever, but I'm also black. Uh, <laughs> but yeah, um, that's usually where I'm at. Um, in terms of like my horror stuff, I don't really talk about it, but I'm willing to answer any questions if anyone wants to DM me and stuff like that. Um, I also like look forward to like hearing how this turns out. And if you need, if you need another perspective, I'm all down. This is really fun. I, I really oh, ab oh, absolutely. No, I guarantee you this will, this is the first, but this will not be the last time that the good Miss Bruno here makes an appearance on It Came From Queens, and this was a rousing success. I thank you guys so much for tuning in once again. If you missed the last two episodes, you can check out my short little uh, mini review I did of Hell House LLC that's available on iTunes and podcast.com right now. Also, my full-length interview with Josh Stifter of Flush Studios. We talked about his upcoming feature, Greywood's Plot. You can check that out as well. Two banger-ass episodes that I'm really proud of, so check those out. They're on the Internet, internet machines, so go on and Google them. But uh, coming up soon, we're going to have a few more uh, guests on the show. Stephanie Satili is going to come back. We're going to be doing a special episode about 90s adult animation on MTV and Adult Swim. That's going to be a hell of a lot of fun because she's an expert Ooh. on that. And I'm, looking, and I'm looking into one very special guest on another horror-related episode, which is coming out very soon. I just emailed them, and they, seem, and they seem down to clown. They seem ready to do it. So we'll see, <laughs> fingers crossed, how that comes, so it comes together. So once again, guys, thank you so much for tuning in again to The Static this evening, joining me and my friend Hillary for discussion. If you want to follow me, you can find me on Twitter at Falbo underscore Benjamin, and you can follow the official It Came From Queens Facebook page at, I, at, at It Came From Queens Pod on Facebook. That's ICFQ Pod on Facebook. Once again, follow that. We have updates. You can find my friend Aaron Kaplan's comedy special available right there now for free, because I know we're all broke right now. You can find that for free. We have a whole bunch of discussion threads and all, all sorts of stuff. Thank you guys once again. Once again, stay inside, wash your goddamn hands, be safe, be happy, and don't forget to stay weird. I'm Benjamin Falbo, signing out. When you're